And now we continue our Bible reading in our series from 1 Samuel. Today I'll be reading 1 Samuel 4, 1 to 22 from the NIV. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road watching because his heart feared for the Ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, 
the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4 as we continue through our series, The Lord's Anointed. Good morning and welcome. It's great to be here. It's great to be opening God's Word together. Let's pray. Father, we read in the headlines and we read in your word of difficult times. And Father, for many of us, we carry in with us today our own difficult times. And Father, we may find ourselves asking the question of where has your glory gone? But we pray now, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us in a way that we can understand and see your goodness and know your love through your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This text before us relates a story in two parts. The first part is the actual relating of the event, the account, and in the second half we have a, uh, a scene, if you will, a bit of a vignette. Um, which is finished uh, with its own epilogue. So there's three parts to this text, verses 1 to 11, then verses 12 to 18, and then the epilogue is in verse 19 to 21. The words on the lips of Phinehas' wife as she is dying due to premature labor, after she's told she's she's given birth to a son, she names him Ichabod, which is to say, no glory, or where is the glory? And if you are following in the narrative, and I had a moment to just look around the room, and it was interesting to see how captivated many of us were just by the story as the slides are going on the screen. If you read this story, it, it really leaves you with that question, where? Where is the glory? Where did it go? And I think there's a lot of people who come to church or look at the church or listen to people in the church today who are asking the same question, where is the glory? Where did it go? Where is it? And so that's our question today, where, where is the glory? And I'm just going to let that just sit as we work through the story. I'm not going to jump to what I feel is a conclusion. I'm going to let us experience it, let us breathe it in, let us live it. So follow with me as we go through. The note at the beginning of verse 1, Samuel's word came to all Israel. If you were here last week, you would have heard about how God was in the process of lowering Eli and his house from their role as priests ministering before the ark and raising up Samuel, his chosen prophet, his mouthpiece. And that's a fitting note. It's an interesting note because it's the last we're going to hear of Samuel for three chapters. Samuel's conspicuously absent over the next three chapters. 
What comes to prominence over the next three chapters is the Ark of God or the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, if you've seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> this is what they're referring to. <laughs> uh, the Ark of the Covenant was a box about three and a half feet long by about two feet deep. And in that box at various points were put things that were special to the people of God. We're told that the stone tablets that God had written with his own finger uh, that he had given to Moses on Mount Sinai were put in the box, the new ones that he'd made. We're also told that there was a jar in the box, a jar of manna that God had provided supernaturally for his people as they went through the wilderness. And we're also told that there was a staff in there, which was the staff of Aaron, his rod, which had budded, and that, was, that came at a time when Aaron's, uh, Aaron and Moses' authority was challenged, and God, God showed that Aaron was indeed his chosen high priest. So these things were in the box, and that's going to dominate the course of this narrative. Verse, second half of verse one reads this, the Israelites camped, uh, excuse me, now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. I'm going to call them Philistines, sorry. I don't know if it's Philistines or Philistines, but that's just, I grew up in, in America, that's what we called them, so I'm not going to add, <laughs> I'm not going to try to uh, add that to this morning. Um, the, the Philistines uh, are at Aphek, the Israelites are camped at Ebenezer. Uh, verse two, the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. Now losing 4,000 people is serious. And if you were an Israelite and you had read your history, you would have understood that actually this wasn't supposed to happen. They're not supposed to lose. They're not supposed to lose when neighbors try to come and oppress them. When the powers that, God, that, that used to uh, enslave them, that the powers that were oppressing them in the land that God had chosen for them and in the place that God had given them, that wasn't supposed to happen. And so that helps us understand what happens in verse 3. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? It's a great question and it's an interesting question and it's actually fantastic theology. The elders recognize, and they're asking the right thing. They say, why did God defeat us today? They didn't say, gee, those Philistines were tough. <laughs> they said, why did God defeat us? But as so often happens in our own lives, they didn't linger over that question very long. And instead, as one commentator put it, they had a bit of a think tank. And they came up with what they figured out was wrong. Now, let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant with us from Shiloh. They want to get the box, the box that's in the most holy place. The box that had the, the, the atonement cover over the top where God asked them to put the blood of the sacrifice. The box which had two cherubim, replicas of what was in heaven. They said, let's go get the box, the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. That's their reasoning. If we get the box, we get God. And if we get God, we get the victory. So the people sent the men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who's enthroned between the cherubim. Now, I'm just gonna make a point of this. I think verse four is our only real clue. If you're trying to ask yourself, where is God in this story? Here's the answer right here. It's in verse four. God is enthroned between the cherubim, not the replica of the cherubim. 
He's enthroned in heaven between the cherubim. Isaiah 66, the Lord says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Go throughout scripture. Look that phrase up. It occurs multiple times. Solomon's prayer when he's dedicating the temple. God is enthroned in heaven. That's where the throne is. So if you're asking yourself, where is God in this narrative? He's right where he's always been. He's enthroned between the cherubim and heaven. Little clue there. But it's easy to misread that like the, the Israelites and think he's there on top of the box. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were, the, were, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. If you haven't been following in this story, these are two scoundrels, as the Bible calls them. Scoundrels, uh, literally uh, wicked men. They have contempt for God. They don't give him the proper weight he deserves. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. You ever watch WWE? You know, WWE, when, when, when the people's champ comes running out of the tunnel, right? Or, uh, you know, Rocky, right? And, 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 and you're like, wow, they finally showed up. You know, the, the, the guys here, we're going to win. This is Israel. They're jumping up and down. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp. They said, oh, no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kind of plagues in the wilderness. Now, their theology is not exactly accurate historically. The plagues happened in Egypt. There were some plagues in the wilderness, but you get the point. This is kind of a repeat of, of what the people in Jericho were saying before the Israelites arrived. They're like, hey, did you hear who's coming? Yahweh's coming. The God of Israel's coming. And they trembled and they were afraid. And there was a woman named Rahab who was listening and was willing to change her whole allegiance because she knew. She knew she was in a city that was about to be destroyed. So the Philistines and the Israelites actually have the same theology right now. Because the Philistines and the Israelites both think God is in the box. Are you with me? They, they're actually believing the same thing. And if you're the people of God and you're believing the same things that the people who don't know God believe, not a good sign. And so, yes, they're having different reactions. Well, it's because the Israelites believe God's in the box and he's going to give them success. He's going to give them victory. They're going to triumph. And the Philistines are thinking the same thing. And they're shaking in their boots. And they're like, well, we don't have anybody to count on but ourselves, which, again, I got to give it to them. At least they're thinking about things accurately. <laughs> they knew God wasn't on their side. So be strong, be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they've been to you. Again, we get a clue. They've been oppressing God's people. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent the slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. They lost 4,000 and now they've lost 30. What was a defeat that ought to have sent them to prayer and reflection has become a disaster. 
an absolute disaster. Now, before we look down our noses at the Israelites and think, you foolish people, why on earth would you think God was in a box? I invite you to recall some of the history. You recall that it was when the Ark of the Covenant entered the water as they crossed the Jordan River, the waters of the Jordan stood still. Do you remember that? Do you recall when they marched around Jericho? They carried the Ark with them. Do you remember that? I'm going to get Josh to put up on the screen Numbers 10 35. This is what Moses would say. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, rise up, Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. Whenever they broke camp and they moved the box, this is what they said. So again, lest we, 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 we think, oh, you, you silly, primitive people. There's precedent for this behavior. The truth is God had gone before them. The truth is God was the symbol of his, well, the ark was the symbol of God's presence. It was the place where he met with his people. So what went wrong? What went wrong? We really wrestled with this all week at Sermon in Scripture. We took a lot of time. But credit where credit is due, Pastor Eddie, great insight. If you actually look at this, if you look at this story very carefully, the ark is referred to in two ways. It's referred to as the ark of the covenant of Yahweh up until the time it is captured. After which time it is referred to as the ark of Elohim, which is God the general word for God, God's ark. Yahweh was the personal name that God had given to his people. Yahweh was the name by which they knew him. It was a name of relationship. It was a name that was sealed with a covenant. Elohim was the, the word that the world used at the time for the almighty. So what went wrong? The best way I've heard it summarized is to say, the Israelites at this point in time were careful to take care of the ark, but they were not careful to take care of the covenant. You see, it was the ark of the covenant of Yahweh. It was a box that symbolized the relationship that symbolized a history, that symbolized an agreement, a, 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 an actual bond between God and his people. But there comes the ark being carried by Hophni and Phinehas, these two wicked men who don't treat God with any sort of respect, and they're marching with it into battle. And it ought to make us pause for a moment and say, could we be guilty of that? of tending to the things of our religion and neglecting the terms of our covenant? 
You say, I'm not under a covenant. Well, uh, if you're in Christ, you're part of what's called the new covenant, which means you are bound to God through Jesus Christ, not on the basis of your obedience, but on the basis of faith. How are you going in your faith? Are you nurturing your faith, your trust in the Lord? Does that trust come out in obedience? You see, we read this story and it's a bit confronting because the place where they used to go and meet God, they didn't find him. He wasn't there. Now, next week, lest we think that God doesn't care about the ark, you're going to see what happens when the ark goes to people who blaspheme him and who think they've actually taken control or taken ownership of him. Uh, Josh, can you put up on the screen for me that first quote from, yeah, this is Dale Ralph Davis, who I think he has a great perspective on this. He says, whatever we make of the words, the thinking is the same. Their assumption is we bring the ark to battle, Yahweh will be forced to deliver us to protect his honor. Should something happen to the ark, it would make Yahweh the loser and naturally he would not allow that to happen. That's their rationale. He'll have to save us now. His honor is at stake. And so now, excuse me, Ralph Davis says, they now have God under pressure because they have the sign of his presence, hence he dare not allow them to lose. To have God's furniture is to have God's power. The ark is their religious ace in the hole. so tempting <laughs> when you come to know God and you've experienced his greatness and his power it's so tempting for human beings to try and harness his power to become just like the, page, the pagans and to say I'm going to bring God down to a size or to a means by which I can control him I used to do this when I was a young Christian. I used to carry around a Bible in my back pocket. I know, it's pretty nerdy. I go to work carrying around a Bible in my back pocket, and it was like this little talisman that I had. And then I loved to read it, and it was fantastic, and that was, that, you know, that was, that was great. And, and I sort of had this sense that, well, if I'm carrying this with me, God, God must be with me. It's his word after all, isn't it? And over time, just eventually God was saying, Jonathan, I wrote the book, but I'm not in the book. You don't just pick me up and carry me with you. I carry you. So we need to stop and consider, is there any way where we're trying to put pressure on God? We're trying to force him to move, force him to act, force him to make things break in our favor. What's your trump card in your hand with God? You're sitting across the table and you're looking at your cards and you think, you know, if I play this, he's going to have to let me win. The story says, 
God holds all the cards. <laughs> Here was a pressure tactic, a way, if you pardon the expression, of twisting God's arm. It's not faith, it's superstition. It's what I call rabbit foot theology. When we, whether the Israelites or Christians, operate this way, our concern is not to seek God, but to control him, not to submit to God, but to use him. So we prefer religious magic to spiritual holiness. We are interested in success, not repentance. Man, I think he hits it on the head. I was talking to one of our elders this week. Can you go back, uh, Josh, to 1 Samuel 4, verse 12? I was talking to one of our elders this week who was listening to a sermon in which the preacher said, you know, there's a difference between agreement and obedience. Agreement says, I will go with you as long as I think the same as you. Obedience says, I will do what you say regardless of what I think. It was a really confronting thought. How many of us are in a relationship with God on the basis of agreement? God, I'll go with you this far because as long as I agree with the direction, as long as it makes sense to me, as long as I can see that the things that I'm wanting to get out of it are the things that I'm getting back from it. But obedience says, I go where you send me. And the wonderful thing is, when you look at the cross, that doesn't have to be a scary thing because unlike the people you may have come up, in, come up into in your life who won't treat you well or who, who might abuse you or misuse you or, or manipulate you for their own interests and not for your best interest, God's not like that. And so if you're someone who's been scared off the idea of obedience because people have tried to make you obey them and that's, learned, that's turned out for your downfall, I encourage you, you've got to have a different category. Well, let's look at the second half of the story. My verse number is cut off. Can you go back to verse, uh, actually I'll just find it. So, the ark's been captured. Verse 11, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. The Philistines, oops, we're going the wrong way. When he arrived there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road watching, which is a curious thing because we find out later he's blind. Can I just put it to you? It doesn't matter what you're watching if you don't have eyes to see. His heart feared for the ark of God. Even Eli, concerned about the furniture. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? Now by this time, if you've been with us three weeks, I hope you remember what God said to Eli on multiple occasions. He says, I'm gonna do something in Israel that are gonna make the ears of people tingle. What's happening now? Eli, who can't see, but he's watching. The ears are tingling. And he says, hey, can somebody tell me what's going on here? Eli's 98 years old. The man hurries over to him. When it says his eyes failed, it means his eyes had hardened. They had become set. Is the description. So yes, they weren't working, but, but we're given more in the text. His eyes had become hardened, had been set. 
I think this is a symptom of idolatry, actually. If we worship for too long the things that are not of God, we lose the ability to see. Our eyes become hardened. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines. The army suffered heavy losses. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of, the God, and the ark of God has been captured. Now, we might think that Eli is about to die of a broken heart because of his children. But look at what the text says. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died for he was an old man and he was heavy. The word heavy is the same word that God used back in chapter 2 when Eli was rebuked over his sons. God said to Eli at the time, he said, the weight with which you give to me, I will give back to you. If you, if you give me weight, then you will be weighted. If you don't give me weight, if you don't give me glory, you will not. And so literally, here we have a picture of a man who dies under the weight of his own glory. Paul Tripp famously has said that in every person's heart, there's a glory war going on. Who's going to get the glory? Who's going to get the credit? Who's going to get the praise? Who's going to get the honor? Who's going to get the success? This text shows us how you can even be super religious and not be committed to the glory of God. You see, at the end of the day, Eli, he thinks God is in the box. He thinks that because the Philistines have taken the ark, that God is now gone. This is the same thing that uh, Phinehas' wife says. Now, it's a birth announcement, and I don't have time to go into all that's here. But I just want you to consider a few things. First of all, remember this book started with a birth, didn't it? The birth of a guy named Samuel, a woman who wanted a son. And here this narrative ends with a woman who is given a son, but she's not all that excited about it. And she names him, Where is the Glory? or there is no glory. Why? We're told because the ark of God and the deaths of her father and her husband. The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So where's the glory? Where did it go? Where did it go? I just want to encourage you, the glory was with God. She's right and she's wrong. She's right in that the glory had departed, but I submit to you that I think she's wrong because of why she thinks it's gone. You see, the glory had departed a while ago, actually, under the corrupt ministry of, of Eli and, and, and his, his wicked sons. 
The word of the Lord wasn't getting out. People weren't speaking. It's not because they took the box. But now here we see that the ark has been captured. And so has God himself been captured? No. The glory's with him. And ironically, ironically, this whole incident we know is God answering the cry of the people's hearts to know him and to see his glory. This isn't God leaving the picture. All this is happening. This is God inserting himself into the picture. Do you remember what he said back in chapter 3? This is what he said to Samuel. I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God. He failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli. The guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sin, uh, by sacrifice or offering. This story is God saying, let me play my trump card. And so ironically, even though it looks like the glory is leaving, it's actually the glory of God reappearing. So, where is the glory? The glory is with God. Where is God? We're told he's enthroned above the cherubim. God is in heaven. And if you read the Old Testament, you realize people, reckon, people, people wrestle with this distance between God and where he is and where they are. And you see, one day God would assert himself again into the situation. And he would insert himself into the situation by allowing his glory to depart. But in this case, it was by allowing his glory to depart from heaven itself and for the word to become flesh and to dwell among us. And so Jesus, fully God, in all his radiance and glory, humbles himself and takes on the form of human flesh. But we know we will see him. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. This is Jesus telling his disciples, all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you? hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? You know what this tells me? 
Human beings, whether they're, when they're in relationship with God or not, struggle sometimes to see the glory of God. You can even know God and not see Him. And here is the people who are about to walk in. And they're saying, we didn't see you. We didn't notice you. When did this happen? Listen to what he says. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, the church always ought to look after the poor, absolutely. But this verse is not referring to the churches and the disciples caring for the poor. This is referring to the disciples of Jesus caring for the brothers and sisters. That's what he says. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Is what Jesus says. If we want to share in the glory of where God is and will be, if we want to walk and be welcomed into that inheritance, brothers and sisters, we need to seek His glory now. And we need to see Him now. And if we don't see Him in one another, if we don't acknowledge His presence through feeding the hungry, visiting the prisoners, tending to the sick among us. In other words, if we don't love one another, then we're shutting our eyes to the glory of God amongst us. Windsor District Baptist Church, it's always been a trap from the beginning of time until now to think that it's the furniture of the religion that matters. To think that it's in the way that we do it. We have a whole lot less fancy thing than the Ark of the Covenant. And yet God in His manifold grace has decided, I will dwell with you. I will dwell with you through my Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 57, God says through his prophet, he says, I dwell in a high and a holy place. I dwell in eternity forever. But he doesn't stop. There's not a period at that point in the sentence. He says, and with the lowly. This is the good news, that your high and holy God would dwell with a lowly, humble, broken people like us. And if he would choose to meet us in our lowliness, will we not seek his glory there?
pray. Our Father, seems to be a symptom of all humanity that we want to control you. Lord, you send your glory where you will. You dwell where you choose to dwell. Father, forgive us for the times when we have attempted to domesticate you or to treat you like a talisman, to try to twist your arm to get the blessing. But Lord, thank you that even people like Jacob who wrestle with you can be your children. Father, help us to love one another. Help us to see your glory here so that we can see it there. In your name we pray. Amen.